You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, May 16, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. You got your Bible, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 uh, is where we're going to pick back up. And as we do, uh, some of you might be familiar with this. There was a, there was a famous uh, art gallery and dealer in the United States uh, called the Nodler Gallery in New York, Um, one of the longest running, longest standing dealers in the American art world, over 165 years of work in New York City. Um, They were forced to shut down in 2011. Does anybody know why? Any of our artists in here know why? In 2011, it was discovered that the Nodler Gallery was guilty of selling at least $63 million in art forgeries, in fake works. Uh, The one that got the most attention, there's a couple documentaries out there about this overall thing, but the one that got the most attention was a particular Jackson Pollock that was sold to a businessman investor in New York City for almost $3 million. And what made it so notable is that the signature was misspelled. (laughs) Nearly $3 million. Pollock is P-O-L-L-O-C-K. They forgot the C. So a little, everybody was wrong on that one. I mean, like the buyer even has some fault in that one. But, you know, in in 2014, uh, the Switzerland Fine Art Expert Institute released a report that stated that at least half of the artwork circulated in the global art market is fake. Forgeries. Prior to COVID, the last numbers we have in 2019 that have been released, the global art market was estimated to be around 60 to $70 billion. Half was not real. Every year, forgeries are exposed in public museums and private galleries and private collections. And the reality of it is, as, as long as there is art and as long as there are people willing to pay for it, there will always be forgeries. There will be good ones. There will be impeccable ones. They won't all misspell the name of the artist. There will be very good ones that deceive very critical buyers. But there's still forgeries nonetheless, and they leave the buyer holding something of of little to no value. I mean, they might as well just be hanging next to my Velvet Elvis from college. It's not even of little to no value. It's actually loss. The millions that were spent to acquire it are are gone, not to be returned. Well, the reality is simply this, too. As long as Jesus tarries in his return, the visible church will always be a a mixed bag of sorts, kind of like a museum. There will be those who proclaim the truth of the gospel, and there will be those who will peddle a forgery. It can be so close, so similar, and the similarities are impeccable, but yet in the end, it's not the real thing. Friends, gospel forgeries are a master class in half-truths. They sound really good on the surface, super tweetable, super shareable, but when you peel back the layers, you realize that they're an altogether different thing. I tried to find the right attribution between the services. I don't know if it's, the, if it's accurate or not, but I think it was Ben Franklin 
who said that half the truth is often the greatest of lies. This is the reality with gospel forgeries. The consequences of which Paul has been reminding Timothy and reminding the church are far more damaging than just the loss of resources and income that you're left with holding an artistic forgery. The consequences of receiving and taking in gospel forgeries are ruinous. Paul says those forgeries were like gangrene, uh, a disease that spreads, infecting and ruining the whole. These forgeries threaten to capsize, overturn the, the faith and the life of many who receive them. Paul's been repeatedly warning Timothy and the church of this. And in his warnings, he said, you know, don't be afraid of it. You know, the reality of it could cause many to have a panic about its impact. But Paul says, don't be afraid. So far, he said, continue to do the work of keeping your attention on Jesus and feasting on his word. Keep making, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus who continue to do the same work. Stay away from these foolish controversies and forgeries that only bring ruin. You know, with his last words, which is what we know this letter to be, the last letter that Paul wrote to the churches, he, he wants the church to be healthy in the long run. And so he's been going back again to being strengthened by the grace of God. Don't be afraid. But at the same time, don't be ignorant either. And this is where Paul picks back up on the same theme this morning in the letter. And he reminds us that the church, just like that museum, it will be a mixed bag until Jesus returns. Listen to how he says it in this metaphor, verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. It's just a picture. It's a metaphor, right? He's, he's painting a picture here. In every house today, just as there were in Paul's days of the bigger houses, of the larger houses, there were vessels in the house that were used for different things. Some of you might have, you know, wedding china that you registered for, or you may even have your parents or your grandparents' wedding china that might get pulled out and used for the most special of occasions once every like seven or eight years. And then in the same house, in your closet, you've got a bucket that you use to mop the floors and clean the toilets with. In every house, there are these different vessels, right? The metaphor Paul is speaking about is the household that God is building, the church. And until Jesus returns, the church is going to be a mixed bag of vessels. And this isn't unique of Paul. Jesus would say the same thing in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the wheats and tares. This is just the reality of life in the visible church until Christ returns, and so what Paul is going to continue to encourage Timothy and the church in, even in this metaphor, is that we are to be the fine china, not the bucket from the closet. Listen to what he says. Therefore, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Being useful to the master of the house, being ready for every good work, Paul says, requires cleansing. Now, here is where reading the Bible in context remains king. Context is always king in reading the Bible. There is a cleansing that is required for us to be ready for every good work, useful to the master of the house. 
On one hand, we have indeed been cleansed from sin by grace through faith in Christ. Past, present, future, cleansed. Paul is referring to a different kind of cleansing here. This is where context reigns supreme. Paul is talking about a cleansing required for a usefulness in God's plans and on God's mission in relation to the dishonorable things that are being put on display by those who have come into the church. It's a different kind of cleansing. It's a cleansing from the dangers that Paul has been warning of and he's going to continue to warn of in the text. You know, as we read through these verses this morning, we're going to at least see that this cleansing means at least these things. Fleeing from temptation, pursuing holiness, avoiding stupid fights, engaging people gently, correcting people clearly, and patiently enduring evil because... Because, there's a why, there is something greater at stake than just winning an argument. This is what Paul's talking about. There's a cleansing from dishonorable things that we play a part in, and he's going to outline at a street-level view what some of that actually looks like. This cleansing is a gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded cleansing. The only way that you and I can participate in this cleansing is by keeping our attention on Jesus, treasuring him more and more, resting in God's faithfulness and the victory of his grace. As we continue to do that work that Paul has been pointing us to, we do that by grace, and that work enables us to participate in the cleansing being called for, being cleansed from dishonorable things in order to be ready for every good work. That's what we should want. The implication that Paul is making is that being ready for every good work, useful to the master of the house, is what we should want. Therefore, we should be all the more eager to cleanse ourselves from the dishonorable things that leave us not ready, right? This is where Paul is going. Verse 22, what does it look like on a street-level view? Being ready. Paul says, therefore, flee. In light of this, flee youthful passions. All of those words are important. I know the first one is going to sound like nails running down a chalkboard for some of us, right? First thing that you to do, run. Flee. Leave. If that sounds like nails on a chalkboard to you, I want you to understand that the Bible paints a different picture, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writing to the church would remind them that they are to flee with all they have from sexual immorality. Flee with all they have, he'll say in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, from idolatry. In his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul's going to talk about the dangers of the pursuit of money and the pursuit of wealth, and he's going to say flee with the same word, these things. The Bible will show over and over and over again there are some things so detrimental to your spiritual well-being and health that the only right response is for you to flee, for you to run from them, for you to turn your back and go in the other direction. So Paul says to flee. Flee what? These passions. It's an interesting word. Paul uses it a lot in his letters. In other letters, it's, it's translated desires. Most familiar probably, Galatians 5.16, when he says, 
I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires, same word, passions, of the flesh. This word that Paul likes to use in his letters is, is understood best in its fullest sense of a passion or a desire that has become an over-desire. There are desires that you and I have and passions that you and I have that are right and that are good and in relation to good things that God has given us for our joy that are meant to lead us in a right response of worship and gratitude to him. But when those good desires and those good passions become over-desires in our heart, they become controlling desires. That's what Paul is talking about. There are controlling desires that you and I are to flee from. To the church in Galatia, he says these desires can look like sexual immorality or impurity, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, faction, envy. All of those things feel good in the moment. All of those things can, can, can give us the feels that we're looking for at times, but all of them are the products of the sinful man. All of them, when becoming over-desires of the heart, begin to bring disaster and ruin. Paul says these over-desires, you and I, as part of this cleansing from the dishonorable, are meant to flee those things. It's right to flee them. Here in 2 Timothy, he gives the caveat of these youthful over-desires. And so again, context has to be king. What is it that Paul's been talking about to Timothy and this church in particular? He's been talking about these gospel forgeries, these deceptions that have come into the church through some of the teachers of the church that have now caused shipwreck in people's lives that are spreading like disease. And there is an over-desire that exists in the heart of man, a controlling desire that is of the flesh that if we don't flee from can come out in response to these things. In the context of what Paul is saying, some of these over-desires we have to flee have to do with this tendency that can rise up in the heart to argue or fight for the sake of making a point. An argumentativeness, and as we'll see, a quarrelsomeness that's there simply to prove that we know more than someone else. Paul calls them youthful desires because in some sense they are over-desires that are common to young men and women, but as you and I know in our day, age has nothing to do with maturity. So it's better to understand these youthful desires in relation to maturity, not so much age. This immaturity that has to engage to win. This immaturity that doesn't seem to have any capacity to display patience. This immaturity, this over-desire to not be submissive to any outside authority, including the word of God. This is what Paul is talking about. You've got to turn from these things and flee these things. And it's important for you to understand, especially if you're still wrestling with the idea of fleeing, that fleeing from these things and fleeing from sin is one aspect of putting sin to death. Some of you that can't stand the idea of fleeing always want to talk about putting sin to death and killing it. Well, guess what? Fleeing is part of that. It's part of how you do it. They're not at odds with each other. 
Listen to what Paul said to the church in Rome in Romans 8. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How do you put it to death? You make no provision for it. How do you make no provision for it? When you see it, you run. You flee. Fleeing is part of killing it. It's what the saints of old would call the mortification of sin. And the reality of it is, until Jesus returns, every single one of us is going to be assaulted daily by the presence and tempting power of sin. Yes, we're dead to that in Jesus. But in the space between his first coming and the inauguration of his kingdom and his second coming that we're longing for when the fulfillment of his kingdom will come, in the space between, we're not free from it. Daily, we're assaulted by it. And we must fight and seek to kill it. And a chief way we do it is by fleeing from it. Now, fleeing sin and fleeing temptation and fleeing over-desires and fleeing these passions that Paul is talking about, it, it can look practically different, different given the sin and the temptation. We flee one thing differently than another because of the nature of the sin. But here in this letter, right, context being king, here in this letter, fleeing at least looks like not getting sucked into fruitless controversies. And when sucked into fruitless controversies, giving in to sinful, youthful anger, impatience, and harshness, right? So flee. Flee these things, right? But not just flee. Look at what he says. And yet pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So run from sinful temptation. Run from these dangerous over-desires and over-passions. Flee them, but run, pursue after Jesus. It's not just a no to sinful desire. It's not just a no to youthful passion. It's not just a no to over-desires. It's a resounding yes to Jesus and his kingdom. It's a no to those things because we're so fixated on the yes to Jesus. This is what the work Paul has been talking about is, keeping Jesus the center of our attention and focus, delighting in him on a daily basis, growing more satisfied in him is what enables us to be able to see these things and flee. So it's not just no to this and then, uh. it's no to this because it's yes to Jesus, yes to his kingdom. This is what Paul is talking about. Beholding Jesus, seeing and enjoying Jesus, keeping our attention on Jesus. As we behold him, we become more like him. It's the dynamic. As Christ's likeness continues to grow and spread in us, we're able to see and flee these things that become so dangerous to our souls. So yes, flee from one thing, but not to just stand. It's to pursue Jesus. So one writer wrote this. He said, if we neglect the priority of being a clean vessel, we forfeit the privilege of still being used by the master of the house. He said, but still, many of us fail to take this call seriously. We forget that the condition for usefulness by the master 
isn't skillfulness. It's holiness. And so the question at the end of the picture is, in which way are you running? Are you fleeing sin and pursuing Jesus? Is that a reality for you? Paul's beating the same drum over and over and over again. For the church to be healthy in the long run, we've got to make Jesus our driving passion. Making Jesus our driving passion is what enables us to cleanse ourselves from that which is dishonorable. And on a street-level view, Paul is going to kind of explain that a little bit more. Here it is. Look, verse 23. Here's what it looks like. Daily street-level have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Sound familiar? Pursuing Jesus and Christ-likeness, it, it's going to involve some, some very practical and very tactical decisions in moments in life and different circumstances that we're going to find ourselves in. When Paul says that we're to have nothing to do with these things, the word literally is a picture, the picture of seeking release. It's a picture of someone who is bound by something, who is seeking release from it. Paul says part of this Christ-likeness is recognizing these foolish and ignorant controversies and seeking release from them. Not always finding the last word in them, but seeking release from them. Because they're foolish. I'm not kidding. You can go look this up. Behind this word foolish is the root for the word that we have, moronic. It means short-sighted and corner-cutting. It's the exact same word that Jesus uses when he speaks about those who hear his words and walk away and don't do what he says. And he rolls right into the story almost anyone who's been in a church at any period of their life is familiar with. The foolish man who built his house on the sand. Cutting corners in short-sightedness. The foolish, moronic man who thought he knew better. You've got to seek release from these kinds of arguments. You have to be able to decide wisely when you just have to walk away. When to hold them and when to fold them. There's a time for both. Kenny Rogers was right. Why? Why? Because they breed quarrels. That's why. They're dishonorable. They produce dishonor. They breed quarrels. Paul's saying you don't need the last word. This youthful over-desire always takes over in the heart sometimes, and we find ourselves so tempted in these moments to take every opportunity to show someone else just how foolish and moronic their line of thinking is. And that becomes the motive. And Paul's saying, you've got to cleanse yourself from this dishonorable over-desire to get the last word on people. There is no such thing, and I couldn't find a better term for it. This is my own term. Tell me a better term for it. But there's no such thing, even in the church, as argumentatively chic. 
right? There are YouTube channels galore in the church dedicated to people who think it's chic to be argumentative. There's no such thing. Paul's saying that this is getting caught up in these foolish controversies that only breed quarrels. Step away from them. Seek release from them. Have nothing to do with them. Solomon would write in Proverbs 17 that these quarrels are like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before the dispute breaks out. Seek release. Don't press post or whatever the button is on Facebook you have to push, whatever it says, I don't know. Instead, turn it off and maybe, maybe pray for whoever that person or group or whatever it is in your own heart. Seek release from it. It only breeds quarrels. And again, we're human. This last year, more than any time in, in my lifetime, and I'm probably hitting the halfway point at almost 46, at any year in my lifetime, this last year has created more space for people through the things that we've experienced, through the things that we've lost, through the things that we've suffered, through people that we have loved that have suffered and all the weight of all of it, through all the stuff. If there's ever been a year that has been a ripe environment for people to look for a fight, it has been this last year. And Paul says, listen, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Verse 24, must not. The old King James Version would say, the Lord's servant must not be a brawler. That's a better picture of it. Loving the fight so much that you are willing to reject peace. That's what a brawler is. I had friends that were brawlers physically. They literally couldn't walk away. We would be in situations in different times in our life, in college and after college, and tensions would rise and circumstances. Would, they could not walk away because they loved the fight more than the peace. The same thing happens, not just physically, but relationally. And Paul says the Lord's servant can't be a brawler. You can't look for and love the fight so much that you're willing to risk the peace. Brawling only creates distance. No bridges are built by brawlers, I promise you. The reality of it is some love to fight over foolish things so much. But it can't be true of the Lord's servant. Not of the one useful for the master of the house. Ready for every good work. He can't be quarrelsome. But rather kind to everyone. Now listen, the, the presence of conflict doesn't mean you all of a sudden have an excuse to not be kind to those you have conflict with. Doesn't mean you won't disagree. Doesn't mean the disagreement may not get contentious and even heated to a degree. But it doesn't give you the excuse to not be kind, to not treat them as a fellow image bearer of God, to treat them with dishonor and disrespect. 
You don't get that out even if their ideology is wrong and dangerous. You're not to be quarrelsome. No brawlers here. The Lord's servant has to be kind to everyone. Because how we carry ourselves in conflict is as important as choosing the right battles to engage in. See, part of what Paul has been talking about is picking your battles. And there are going to be conflicts to engage in. He's going to get to it in just a minute. You're going to have to say you're wrong at some point. There's a reason why you do that and a way in which we do that. But even in those times, you don't get the card that gives you a pass on being kind, respectful. That's what the word is after. Know the Lord's servant, ready for every good work, useful to the master of the house, right? He can't be a brawler, but he's got to be kind to everyone and able to teach. What Paul is after here is just the reminder that, you know, in the ever-present face of gospel forgeries, you've got to be able to communicate and pass on the truth of the gospel with clarity and with conviction. It's helping people to see the foolishness of the ideas that they're caught in. And what it means, at least, is that you and I have to constantly be coming more conversant with God's word, more familiar with Jesus, not just in our mind, but transformed in our heart, not just our knowledge of him, but our affection for him. We have to be so conversant with him and his word that we're able to see some of these things and be able to speak with clarity and conviction when the time comes able to actually teach. And in doing that, look at verse 25. We'll come back to what I'm skipping because this is actually the order we tend to experience this reality. In doing that, the Lord's servant is correcting his opponents with gentleness. Right? Kindness doesn't equal timidity. There are times when focusing on Jesus and his grace will require you to actually correct people especially when the substance at hand in the discussion or the disagreement or whatever it is that's coming to a head has to do as a threat to what's essential. When the biblical understanding of the nature and character of God, of God is at stake, when a biblical understanding of the nature of sin and the totality of depravity and the necessity of grace and the necessity of Christ is at stake, when a forgery is redefining the need for Jesus' substitutionary death, when a forgery sounds so good and you can tweet it all day long, but when you peel it back, it's rejecting the need for Jesus and just encouraging you to be your best self. You've got to be able to see it. When those things are at stake, this is what Paul is talking about. You're going to have to speak. But the way that we speak, and even the, what's a good word for it? Even the approach that Paul is advocating here is different in the way that you and I tend to do it. I know at least different for myself. Paul uses one of my absolute favorite Greek words in this verse. Paul uses it multiple times in his letters, most famously in the letter to the church in Ephesus where Timothy is right now. It's the Greek word paideia. Now, paideia is a massive concept in the Greek world. Everybody who would have read Paul's letter would have been conversant with it. What it actually means is this. In the Greek world, there was this 
overarching view of life that said there is an ideal way to think about something and to do something, and it was the Greek way. There is an ideal way to think about life and philosophy and ethics, an ideal way to think about art and architecture and music, an ideal way to think about life, and it was the Greek way. And if you could cultivate the soul of someone from the earliest days through adulthood in this ideal way, you would have the ideal Greek citizen who then would occupy the ideal Greek polis or city and thereby creating the ideal society. The concept of that was called paideia. And what Paul says right here is that with gentleness, with respect, with clarity, and with conviction... You and I, when the essentials are on the line, have to speak, and we have to help people see there is an overarching story that God is writing that they are a part of. There is a way of understanding the totality of the world. There is a way of understanding their life, who they are. There isn't a way of understanding the world, why it is the way it is, how it's going to get to where we all hope that it gets to. The role of the creator God in that and the place in the story he has put us. Paul is talking about reframing people's narratives. The lies that they are believing and taking in that are redefining the story of God's work and God's grace. He's talking about helping give them a biblical worldview of who God is and who they are in light of him. He's not talking about winning a punch list of arguments. He's talking about helping people reframe their understanding of life according to the gospel. This is what he's getting after. And we do that with gentleness. Not looking to embarrass people, not looking to humiliate people, not trigger happy on our arguments, not reactionary, not easily exasperated, but with respect. Rightly understanding learning to understand, trying to understand the story with which they're finding themselves captivated by so that we can help them see with clarity and conviction the true story that God is writing. And there's a reason why we do that. Paul's going to get there in just a second. We have to remember, as we flee from these youthful over-desires that want to fight and to prove something, in our pursuit, we are to pursue peace. And how we help people see the story of the world in which they are a part of that God is writing and creating, we, we have to do it with this end in mind. In fact, James would say the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And look at this, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make it, right? In all of this, Paul is reminding us that in our pursuit of peace, even in the face of opposition and bad ideas that seek to capsize the faith of many, we're to be peacemakers, not fighters and brawlers. If we have to correct, we do it to protect the truth and promote peace. We don't do it for sport, because as we keep our attention on Jesus and enjoy the grace of God through his son, we're reminded daily that our God is the God of peace and our message is the gospel of peace. And it's Jesus himself who has made peace and is our peace. And so as we engage in these things, it's 
peace that we're preaching to those who are far off and those who are near. That's why Paul will remind the church to pursue what makes for peace and strive for peace with everyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, all of you who are members of the body of Christ live peaceably with all. Because it's Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is part of the aim and the way in which we go about these things. But I skipped over one that tends to be the last of the experience. If you think about the things that Paul is reminding us of, the way we experience them, the last is simply this. In all of it, we have to be patiently enduring evil. Because here's a little secret if you haven't figured it out this year. Conflicts don't always resolve quickly and painlessly. Correction doesn't always go well. I mean, sometimes, even if you're not quarrelsome, and let's just say you're kind and respectful and have been clear about what God says in his word, sometimes what you get in return isn't reasonableness. Not every time, but sometimes. Sometimes it's not reasonableness. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it will be unfair. Sometimes it will be slandering. Sometimes what you will receive in return is an assault on your reputation. And here's what happens. A lot of times when that is what is returned, we can become very quick to take offense and very slow to forgive. What Paul is reminding us of here is that in all of this, the Lord's servant, cleansing himself from that which is dishonorable, being ready for every good work that the master of the house has for us, he can't be one marked by resentment. That's really what this phrase means. You can't be one that holds tight to resentment. As one writer said, the picture in the context of this letter is of a meeting the opposition of someone else that's aggressive and controversial and yet absorbing the pain without losing your temper and lashing back. You've got to have a thick skin in this. Not because you're a glutton for punishment. Right? That's not at all what Jesus has ever taught in the Gospels and what Paul encourages the church in. It's not because you like it, but it's because you understand that there's something so much greater at stake than proving your point, than being right, than winning an argument. It's that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. What Paul has been describing is the, is the life of a disciple of Jesus that lives in the awareness that ultimately in the end our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our, our battle is against powers and principalities. What we want, ultimately, what the Lord's servant that Paul is describing here wants is that people may come to their senses Literally, that's the phrase for sobering up. That's the phrase for coming out of an intoxication. That's the Greek word behind this. That people would literally sober up 
And when they wake up, they come to realize that they've been trapped. They've been caught in a snare. What the servant of the Lord that Paul is describing wants is for people to wake up and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What Paul is painting a picture of here is the reality of spiritual battle. He's picturing the devil like a hunter. Some of you are very skillful hunters. Some of you have experience in trapping. That's the picture, live trapping of an animal. But the devil seeks, prowls like a roaring lion, trapping, ensnaring people in his lies. And then Paul adds this crazy point that somehow after trapping them, he drugs them. And they're unaware. Like there's this intoxication with what they're ensnared by. That's the way sin works. We get ensnared by a lie and we become intoxicated by it. Because for a manner of time and a manner of moments, we get the feels from it. And we get intoxicated by it without realizing we've been ensnared. We've been caught. And what Paul is saying is that the Lord's servant, the one who is putting away the dishonorable quarrelsomeness that's so common to the sinful heart, that's seeking with gentleness and respect and kindness to help people see with clarity the story that God is writing of his atonement and his world and his grace through his son, to help people see that so clearly so that God might grant them repentance to come to their senses and see the lie they've been caught in. That's what Paul is talking about. So so moving away from quarrelsomeness and being respectful and being kind and, and aptly teaching with conviction and clarity God's word is because what we want more than anything is for God to set people free, not to win something. That's dishonorable. We want to see people set free. We're not at war against people. We're not at war against thinkers of bad ideology. The battle is with powers and principalities and ensnaring, deceiving lies that trap people, that intoxicate them and deceive them, that ultimately lead to ruin and shipwreck. So the Lord's servant desirous to be used by the master of the house for every good work puts away the dishonorable things, flees from them that would get in the way of being used by the master of the house to see people set free. That's what Paul is getting after. That is what we ought to want. That's why we have to flee. That we might be good instruments in his hands. That God uses patient and kind and gentle correction from his people who refuse to be quarrelsome and hold no resentment to others, aptly exposing the lies of the enemy and reframing people's narratives that God might grant them repentance and bring them to their senses. It's about seeing people set free. That's the end for which we aim. And so as we get, as we find ourselves, let's say, confronted by all these various temptations and oppositions and trials. As we prepare to end, let me just leave you with a little direction and insight that I got from David Mathis, who's a pastor in Minnesota. And he said, as we try to discern between these controversies that we need to avoid, we need to seek release from, but yet 
the conflicts we need for the sake of the gospel to engage in, he, he left a number of questions that I think are very helpful for us to ask of ourselves as we're trying to figure it out. He said, first, I've got to ask myself, is this conflict about me, my ego, my preference, my threatened illusion of control? Or is it about my Lord, his gospel, and his church? Am I remembering in this moment that my greatest enemy is not the person I'm looking at, but Satan himself and my own indwelling sin? I've got to ask myself, what's the tenor of my life? Do I just go from one fight to another? Are there ever seasons of peace? Or am I engaging conflict as an end in itself or, or is preserving and securing Christian peace clearly the goal? As the servant of the Lord, not of myself, am I avoiding petty causes that an unholy part of me wants to pursue while taking on the difficult and painful and righteous causes that an unholy part of me wants to avoid? Am I simply angry at my opponents, desiring to show them up or expose them, or am I sad for them? Better yet, am I compassionate for them, genuinely praying that God would free them from deception and grant them repentance? Am I more inclined to anger against them or tears for them? It's very helpful because how we go about these controversies as servants of the Lord, the manner in which we do and the attitude with which we do matters. And so as the Holy Spirit continues to work in us, to transform us, as we continue to keep Jesus our main priority, as we keep our attention on him and his spirit does his work in us, there is an increasing Christ-likeness taking root and it should become apparent that even in these things we begin to look more and more like him. Him who is the ultimate honorable vessel. The one eternally set apart for the purpose of rescuing sinners like us. Who because of his perfect life in our place, his sacrificial death for our sin, God in his grace makes us righteous and gives us the power to live out his character. That we become more and more like him the ultimate servant who said he himself was gentle and humble in heart, who Isaiah said was oppressed and afflicted yet didn't open his mouth, who bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. As we fix our eyes on him and his spirit does his work in us together, you and I can become vessels for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Friends, let's keep our attention on Jesus. Together, of all things we encourage each other to, let's encourage each other to behold him, trusting that by the power of his spirit at work in us, we'll increasingly become more and more like him. Let me pray for us this morning, and we're going to take a moment to respond to God's word. Father, I can't make myself this kind of vessel. Left to myself, I only want to indulge in the youthful passions of my heart, the over-desires that take over. Lord, it is only by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit at work in my heart that I am able to flee these things, to see the danger of these things, 
to progressively put these things away. Lord, help us together to keep our attention on your son, to keep our focus on him, to find our delight. Let him become the over-desire, the controlling desire of our heart. Let your faithfulness towards your people be the foundation of this in us, that we find you most satisfying and that we might be able to see and flee from the things that could only bring ruin. Lord, help us as we keep our attention on you to continue the work of cleansing ourselves from these dishonorable things because more than anything, we want to be ready for every good work. We want to be useful in your hands, instruments of your righteousness that others, through our lives, through our words, and by the work of your spirit, might see you and become free. And we ask that you would do this by the power of your spirit in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.